Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 3, Episode 10. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Well, Steve, once again, you and I get to chit and chat together. It's you and me projecting from that great Canadian actor, Rick Moranis, and his classic (laughs) Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, to Steve, (laughs) I Think We've Shrunk the Store. And that's what we talk about a little bit later. But before we get into that, let's talk about the, the retail news. Busy we never week. Talk, we, now, we never talk about these guys, so I'm really thrilled we bring them back up. Amazon. Uh, yeah. yeah. I feel, I'm, I'm sure they're very neglected. I'm surprised we haven't gotten any uh, nasty grams from the PR department. Uh, let's talk about Whole Foods. So a couple of things are happening at Whole Foods. Uh, first of all, uh, on a business level, they've added back in a delivery fee. So let's yeah. start there. So t- tell me about that. And this, you know, as I'm sure everyone knows, Amazon owns Whole Foods, but let's let's start talking about this delivery fee thing. Well, one of the big features of Prime has been that there is free two-hour delivery uh, built in, or there was free two-hour delivery built in, but they announced this week uh, that they are going to eliminate that. And there is now a $9.95 charge uh, for two-hour delivery. Still free one-hour delivery for Prime members if you want to go pick it up. But uh, this is a pretty big change. They were um, testing it in five or six markets for a while. Uh, but, yeah, they just announced that that's going to go everywhere, which has gotten, number one, a lot of pushback online from customers complaining about it, feeling like they kind of changed the deal in terms of Prime membership, which is a paid membership. But of course, nobody likes price increases. But to me, what's interesting about this, and I kind of think the folks in Bentonville and Minneapolis and, and other places were breathing a sigh of relief because as we've touched on a bunch of times, the cost of grocery delivery is uh, is generally pretty prohibitive for the retailers. So to the extent this either allows more people or more retailers to charge to get some of that money back or encourages more customers to come to the store, which I suspect will be the bigger effect, you know, that's that's a much better financial outcome for um, for retailers. It's been an interesting journey, right, with Amazon buying Whole Foods. I mean, if you cast our minds back a couple of years ago, the announcement was made. And it was, oh my God, it's the end of grocery and the grocery. I think it took like a billion dollars out of the market, uh, yeah, which was just yeah. fantastical, just ridiculous. Because you know, at the end of the day, it's a four hundred store chain, four hundred and fifty stores is but fourteen in Canada. I think, yeah, close to four hundred in the U.S. It's positioned at a certain price point. I thought when Amazon bought it, I was going the other way. I thought they were catching a falling knife, basically. I mean, Whole Mm. Foods was not doing spectacularly well. um, And I didn't really see the fit. I didn't see the fit culturally. I didn't see why they needed to. I mean, there's other groceries you could buy. They paid, what, $14 billion for them. And Amazon can pay any amount of money. They could have bought anybody, practically. Yeah, I mean, in the Um, scheme of things, it's a relatively inexpensive experiment. You can argue, um, you know, a lot of people have had thoughts on whether this was really the the way for them to learn about the grocery business, that they had designs on on a bigger plan, which they seem to be executing now for mainstream grocery. Because you're entirely right. Whole Foods in the scheme of things is very much a niche player. That's not where the big money is. It's going to be much yeah, more where yeah. they're going with Amazon Fresh. Uh, but the other thought was, okay, well, it's a more upscale consumer. And if they get more data about the upscale consumer, perhaps that helps them in the fashion business and some other aspects of their growth plans um, yeah. i don't think that's yeah. paid off so much but maybe the grocery part has uh, has been good r&d for them um all right well let's uh, <laughs> enough about amazon uh let's talk about earnings another batch of earnings and uh, some information on 
Warby Parker, what have you, uh, what have you distilled from this week's earning calls? Well, a lot of just general retail market activity. So the three earnings announcements I thought were the most interesting. Uh, one, well, let's start with the good news. The good news for the most part was Costco, which um, had, a, I want to say, about a 10 or 11% sales increase uh, and an even better earnings increase. So those were pretty strong numbers, even though they alluded to uh, concerns about inflation, supply chain, and all that kind of stuff. So they managed some pretty good numbers despite some of those headwinds. And also, I would have thought, you know, this has come up several times where with um, COVID being a little bit less of an issue, that you know, grocery isn't having the kind of banner year as people go back to eat out mm-hmm. more. And, you know, Costco is not a traditional grocer. Um, they've got a mix of other other stuff. But I think Wall Street was expecting that their sales might might be tamped down a little bit and they weren't. So that was pretty impressive on the flip side. Well, let's say the moderate side, uh, Nike's earnings were actually pretty good. I mean, their sales, a good solid sales growth. Most people would be happy with the kind of sales growth. I think it's like 19% or something in the U S 11% in China, which was a little bit low for them. Uh, their margins were actually pretty good, but, uh, people got pretty concerned because they talked about all the supply chain challenges they're having and they basically guided much lower for the balance of the year and i think you know into next year and i think we we talked about this um maybe a few weeks ago about how much product uh nike but others are um having made overseas and in vietnam in particular and vietnam just you know nothing's coming out of there and it doesn't look like much is going to come out of there for quite some time so that that was a big damper on nike talk about uh Bed Bath and Beyond numbers. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the the train wreck, I guess you could say, which is probably charitable in the earnings announcements. Um, Bed Bath and Beyond, folks may know, um, certainly it was struggling for quite a long time, but they brought in a whole new leadership team, uh, Mark Trident from Target, most notably, but a whole bunch of other senior executives, and they've been implementing not only extensive private brand programs, remodeling stores, bringing in new brands, and so. They actually were posting some pretty good numbers, seemed to have some pretty good momentum. And then they announced this quarter where sales uh, retreated significantly. And they talked about how traffic, I think I don't have the number in front of me, but the traffic to their stores in August was down 20-something percent. Uh, wow. Which, wow. You know, on the one hand, you could say, well, yeah, COVID in certain areas have kind of come, come back. But that seemed to be really out of whack with what a bunch of other people are reporting. Uh, they also, like everybody, are talking about supply chain, cost of goods, inflation, those those sort of things. And so both the uh, warning aspect that we saw in a lot of retailers, but but in particular the traffic declines, uh, caused people to run to the exit. I think the stock was down 20%, 25% the day of their earnings mm. announcement. So that's, that's a little bit mysterious, not good news. The other kind of market news um, is what I would put under the kind of IPO boom heading, which is a number of retailers, some of which we've talked about in the past, like Allbirds and Warby Parker, uh, going public. But we've got Guitar Center, Claire's, Mattress Firm. So you've got these kind of hot, sexy brands like Allbirds and Warby Parker going public. And then you got these other three <laughs> brands, which are, were bankrupt uh, <laughs> last year or so, right. also going public. Yeah. So we'll see, we'll see how that sorts out. But the one that did actually go public this week was Warby Parker, which we talked about with Dan McCarthy uh, a couple episodes, I guess, at this point. And uh, they went public. Um, stock rose a lot. 
I believe they close as we're recording I saw 50%? this. 50%? I, I, I saw. It, 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 it spiked a lot. I, I, you know, where it's sorted out, I haven't looked at the market today. We're recording this on Friday. But their valuation at the, the close of their first day of trading was about $6 billion. Fun fact same day, I think, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, with their announcement, their market value is $2 billion. So here you've got this you know, really well-known retailer with eight, 900 stores, I guess, um, multi-billion dollar business with a $2 billion valuation. And then Warby Parker, which loses money and you know maybe does $600 million in the year ahead, $6 billion valuation. Hmm. So. Uh, all right, let's move on. Let's talk, about, uh, let's talk about Target. So they're making an announcement around holiday. Uh, tell me about what you uh, what you perceive of their latest announcement. Well, pretty much they're kicking off the holiday season October 10th, which uh, is a little early. <laughs> I think most people <laughs> would, would would say, you know, on the one hand, uh, as, as probably everybody knows by now, particularly if you've been in retail for a while, the the holiday season, the Christmas season, just seems to keep creeping earlier and earlier and earlier. So, to a certain degree. Uh, not that surprising, but, but I guess they're kind of officially kicking it off with their holiday deals. But I think a lot of this, aside from just kind of cutting the line and trying to get out there before Amazon or Walmart and everybody steals their thunder is, uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of the supply chain issues. I think that, that the story about products being in short supply, uh, I think is transcended from just being industry insider kind of stuff to a consumer story. So I think this is this is largely in response to what consumers are, are um, likely to be doing. So I suspect mm-hmm. we will see every other retailer on the planet probably do some version of a of a um, competitive response. You know exactly what that looks like. But yeah, I think uh, Chris, Christmas is going to come early, whether it turns out to be a lump of coal or not. Uh, <laughs> you know, we'll see. So there's been this big company. That when everybody says, I was on a panel this morning, you know, e-commerce, you're gonna, you, you'll die without it, you got to be Omni. Everybody goes, but wait, there's one very successful retailer that has no e-commerce. That might be coming to an end. Talk about that. Well, really kind of the whole category of off-price retail, which I'm sure most people know, uh, the off-price category, you know, TJ Maxx, Ross Stores, Burlington, bunch of others has been one of the fastest growing categories for a decade plus. Um, most of these retailers have opened, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of stores and have seen gro- good growth, but virtually no e-commerce. Uh, in fact, I think it was Burlington that mm-hmm. had e-commerce and then closed it down in COVID, which was seemingly counterintuitive, but home goods, which is the Home Furnishings off-price division of TJX, they announced this past week that they are going back into e-commerce. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a little bit of a, a counter-narrative. Um, I always, I guess two things uh, I'll comment on. One is I always thought it, it was a little bit funny, and it gets to kind of this whole siloed thing of, of thinking about e-commerce having to be a transaction channel uh, as opposed to, yes, being a transaction channel, but also being an enabler of store sales and particularly with buy online, pick up and store, uh, you know, there, there's this intersection between physical and digital. That's important. Also, maybe you want to go see whether there's inventory in the store before you go down there. And so uh, to me, it wasn't so much about e-commerce as a transaction channel. It was really digitally enabling across, across channels. But the, the pushback from the off price retailers, which I will say in my experience is mostly BS is that, well, we don't know what we're going to have. So how could we possibly yeah. put it on a website? And 
you know, they like to create this illusion that everything is like, you know, fall off the back of a truck and that's why it's such a great deal. But, you know, so much of the product for these stores is made for them. So they absolutely uh, know uh, what they have. And yes, there is a portion that's, that's more treasure hunty, but, you know, so I think there has been a little bit of, uh, of a smoke and mirrors game, but, but a big part of it, which gets me to my second point is concerns about profitability because the price points are fairly low. And as we've yep. talked about returns are quite high. So there is a real concern about how to profitably do e-commerce in the off price channel. Well, all right, that was our news of the week. Now, before we get to our you and me just chit and chat, and I want to remind uh, the listeners, or conversely, the viewers, uh, well, if you're viewing this, you already know we have a YouTube channel, and uh, it's bonus it's bonus content because you and I chit and chat uh, for actually closer to 20 minutes, half an hour, but we kind of, for time, uh, we kind of trim that down to about 10 minutes. But if you want to hear our full discussion, we get into some fun stuff back and forth. Visit our YouTube site, uh, and just look for Remarkable Retail, and uh, we'll be there. But for now, let's get into this Honey, I Shrunk the Store uh, discussion. So let's uh, let's kick it off. Well, Steve, we're back on the mic talking about stores. And in this instance, in this episode, you and I wanted to talk about small stores. Let's start at the beginning. Why, why would we talk about Why would we have an episode around small store strategy? What, what's on your mind? Well, the primary reason I think is we've seen a pretty significant uptick in retailers either opening or announcing they're going to open smaller store formats. So when we think about some of the the large legacy retailers, we've got Macy's with their market by Macy's concept. They just opened Bloomies. Uh, Express is going to do a store called Edit. Uh, Target's been, I think they've got 50 or so smaller stores, um, either their urban city store or these campus, university campus stores, Ikea, Amazon. So there's just a lot more activity um, on the part of legacy retailers with these smaller store formats in the last really six months or so. Um, and then even though it's kind of a different thing, a lot of the digitally native vertical brands, as we've, we've touched on, are accelerating their store strategies and going about it in a, mm. in a different way, L- largely showrooms. So they're pretty small format stores. So I think it's a little different, different thing. But yeah, it seems there seems to be a real uptick. And actually, I, ex- I expect we're going to see even more of this as we move ahead. Let's talk about it. Is this something that was brought on by the COVID era, by the development of changes in retail? Is this is this all that new that that retailers would examine different formats and different sizes? I don't think fundamentally. I think there's some different things going on here. But I was thinking about this um, prior to getting on the mic here. Uh, I've worked on a, quite a few small store formats over the years, way back in the in the '90s when I was at, I was at Sears. Sears was experimenting with quite a lot of, I guess you'd say, kind of category specific stores. So mm-hmm. instead of building a mall, taking one of the uh, categories they were known for, like hardware, mattresses, appliances, and opening these more focused stores, which I think is fundamentally about leveraging a strength, getting closer to the customer, maybe attracting a slightly different customer with a different location. Um, I also worked on uh, two, two things at Neiman Marcus more recently. One was a concept we called Cusp, which is a specialty store, uh, really focused more on kind of the modern luxury customer. And the thrust there was, um, you know, we could open a lot more of these locations in theory than the big full line Neiman Marcus stores and you know easier to find 
locations. You don't have to be part of a big mall. But the idea was really to go after a slightly different customer, younger, mm-hmm. uh, lower lower price points. Um, Barney's did that with their co-op stores as, as well. So I think certainly you've got one thrust, which is let's reach lower uh, you know, lower, um, let's go after different customers with say lower prices. So that's very much behind an outlet and factory store. Mm-hmm. So those stores are generally much smaller than kind of the mothership. These category yep. stores, like, um, I mentioned as well as Amazon bookstore, Amazon four, four star. There's definitely a, yep. a, a slightly different angle, which has been around for a while, which is to right size your store to make really expensive real estate work. So most often we see that in, right. in urban centers. So Walmart's got these neighborhood stores, not a lot of them cities got, or yep. Target's got their city concepts. And then the other one, which I also uh, actually tried to clean up a bunch of years ago is the idea that you right size a store for smaller markets. So secondary mm. cities, lower markets and Kohl's, Best Buy, many others have been doing that for a while. Sears was on this, um, also did this for quite a number of years. So there's, you know, there's different motivations. And like we said, you know, the digitally native vertical brands are going after stores as really in addition to just being online only to reach more customers, lower cost of customer acquisition, you know, those sort of things. So I think we have to really think about mm. what you're trying to do. Um, yeah. But the new thrust I think is a, is a little bit different, which maybe we can kind of unpack a little bit what's what seems to be driving it today versus what we've seen over you know 15 20 25 years yeah i can think of a couple of things that would drive it differently but just to hang on your ideas about these different there's different pros and cons to each right we should probably unpack those for a minute or two i mean taking a store and shrinking it uh, and trying to keep you know particularly if it's a big store with a broad assortment with lots of different categories that feels to me they like you wind up good at everything but not great at anything because you've you've got a smaller assortment maybe it's not what people are looking for i mean there's some grocers here in canada that have uh you know neighborhood stores where they take their huge box store and put it in a small store neighborhood and and you know it, it it's great real estate strategy but it 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 suffers from assortment right there's not the assortment people were expecting and and so I, in one case sobeys actually just changed the brand they bought a, a brand called farm boy and it just suited a smaller urban market. So they just can start converting them all to that. So that brings up the other issue is, is you're starting to meddle with the brand a little bit, what people expect. I see it, you know, back in our history, your history, you know, open up a, you know, if you're Sears, you open up a tool destination or a big ticket destination. But what are the, what are the pitfalls? Is that, is that when, when you would go through or you would today start to advise people about what to think about? I certainly think when you have a well-known brand, and there's an expectation of what that brand stands for. And then you open essentially a watered down version of that brand. Mm. That can be tr- pretty tricky. Um, way back when, like I said, I worked on the, on trying to clean up the Sears, uh, smaller stores. And the, the issue there for sure, well, it was one of two things. When we first opened them, which was way before my time, it was back like in the seventies and eighties. Um, they were fairly competitive and they were bringing something new to some of these secondary or tertiary markets. But as soon as Walmart came along or target came along or whatever, suddenly they were just not competitive. So there were a set of stores that just weren't competitive. Then there's this other issue. And I'll just use as an example. Um, some folks may remember that Saks, probably 20, 25 years ago were opening these main street stores 
And they were quite a bit smaller than the typical Saks store, but they were also going into kind of secondary cities like Charleston and Hmm. suburbs of New York and things like that. And that was a big disappointment because it was really just a little bit of everything. And so I think you have to be very careful. Now, just to use the Saks example again, I think if you've got a powerful reputation in a particular category and there really isn't a competing Saks store that's not too far away or there isn't really a great Hmm. set of competitors, that maybe can work a little bit better. But like what we did when we opened the Cusp stores at Neiman's, we were very careful, first of all, to give them a different brand name and really kind of say, you know, brought to you by Neiman Marcus as opposed to leading with that. Yeah, yeah. And it was very clear yeah. um, because these stores were seven, 8,000 square feet, not 150,000 square feet, um, and located in some different areas that it was not at all a Neiman Marcus store. Now, for various reasons, that strategy didn't go forward in the, the contemporary cusp is basically now the contemporary department in a Neiman Marcus store. But I think, yeah, it's very important to both understand the expectation about the brand and either not water it down or go about it in a different way, but also just be really mindful of what the competitive set is. So uh, on that example, we're talking about that. I suspect the reason why the, the city targets work is because there's strong affinity towards target in general. And Mm -hmm where they tend to put these, there aren't good alternatives you know, right. because it's just too hard. You know, there's no huge Walmart, um, you know, yep. down the street or you're taking public transportation. And so just the hassle of getting there. So that's a really different thing than somebody just, you know, jumping on the highway and, and driving yes. 10 minutes to get to, you know, the real, <laughs> the real target or the real Walmart or the real yeah, yeah, yeah. Nordstrom. Um, let's bridge over to current events. So as I think about, what we're talking about smaller stores, I think about two things. One is the work from home readjustment in the workplace. So that may be, you know, that may be smaller than it is today, maybe bigger than it is today, but there's no question when I talk to retailers, they tell me their downtown stores are, are, are struggling a bit. Their urban stores are growing. Maybe, you know, they were planning to put more stores in, in urban markets. So maybe that's a, a, a real estate play. And the second thing of course is e-commerce. So when you say, you know, you didn't have the target assortment in the little target, in the smaller target stores where you, ha- you have it online, how do these two things in your mind play together in, in the current environment? It's one thing to, I guess the way I think about it is, it's one thing to optimize, so to speak, your store for a new situation. So generally, it is true that by virtue of e-commerce, your stores don't necessarily have to be as big and you can still Mm -hmm. meet the customer's price, particularly if the things you're taking out are more commodity like. So I think you really have to understand the customer, why they're coming to your store. Is it an add on item? Is it, you know, something that they really want to see touch and feel, maybe get sales help. So I certainly think with some formats, uh, you can have a smaller store, but it's really more optimization as opposed to really thinking about your go-to-market strategy in a fundamentally different way. Um, hmm. So that's why I think when we talk about what what Target is doing or or um, some of these large retailers with their newer stores, it's still basically their full version store. They're just tweaking it for kind of this this new environment. It's a different thing 
and you mentioned Nordstrom Local, it's a different thing mm-hmm. to really say, okay, we want to build a really different format to serve a really different role. And so Nordstrom Local, which I know we've talked about a few times on the podcast, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. only a couple thousand square feet. And there is no merchandise offering um, for take with business. So it's really obvious it's not anything like a Nordstrom department store. But what they're doing Mm -hmm. is kind of surrounding the Nordstrom full-line stores to make these stores more of a service concept. So buy online, pick up at store, buy online, return to store. Returns and all that. Alterations. Right. And so, you know, that is extending their reach and doing so in a much more capital efficient way and brand consistent because you're getting the best of both worlds you're not setting expectations that this is a nordstrom in what you're traditionally thinking about it right at the risk of stating the obvious i think that you know part of the way you get to this because i've been asked this question a bunch of times and it's hard to say you know there's just one rule of thumb for all of retail because there Mm. really isn't Mm -hmm. but start with the consumer you know are you really Mm. solving a problem for consumers i think in the case of nordstrom local it's a hassle for many people if, the, if what they want to do is pick up an order or exchange something or just get some alterations done for something they ordered online. In many cases, it's a real hassle to have to go to the, the full line Nordstrom store because it's not close to their home or office in many cases. You know, you got to deal with the parking deck, go up the escalator, the whole bit. So you're, they're really leveraging strengths they have, but going after a few specific issues. If you want to go see the whole assortment, presumably it's worth driving an extra 15 or 20 minutes or planning for it as opposed to running into a Nordstrom local after work or what have you. So I think you're really, you know, a lot of cases if the retailers are really just kind of optimizing a store to get the return on assets to be better. Well, what are you taking out? And is the thing you're taking out really undermine why customers go to you in the first place? And so I think that's why we've seen some of these strategies fail. Mm -hmm. So you have to start with the consumer. You always obviously have to pay attention to the economics and the trade-offs and, and so forth. But yeah. I think it's I think we're going to see more of these kind of not necessarily singular purpose hmm. stores, but kind of more service-oriented mm-hmm. stores. Um, the other thing I think is really specific to, well, not unique to just department stores, but I think is a real challenge um, to department stores. And I know we touched on this in a recent episode a bit, is if you're a large department store with this vast offering and you're continuing to close stores, you are making yourself less convenient to the customer who wants to go into your store, whether that's to see the merchandise, get sales help or, or do a return. So I think the challenge, so, so just to, for completion here, um, just to remind people. So Macy's is pursuing a few small store strategies. One is their outlet store, strategy, which, you know, we already kind of talked about the reason for that. I think that strategy is probably 20 years too late, but, you know, it's not inherently a flawed idea. Then they're trying these two other kind of specialty store concepts, one called Market by Macy's um, and one which is um, uh, Bloomies, which is a small store version of Bloomingdale's, which is part of Macy's. And here, these stores are much smaller, like 20, 22,000 square feet, and they're edited curated, as I guess, as we like to say, but still a little bit of everything for everybody. And they've added some features and they're more modern and there's some cool technology and everything. But that, you know, on the one hand gets Macy's closer to the customer, particularly where they may have exited markets. Um, 
But I think the question will be how, how do they really develop that business? Who are they stealing market share for, from? Does the customer really need it? Mm-hmm. And I don't know the answer to that, that question. Um, I do get a little bit worried that they may be really just kind of a watered-down version of Macy's. And people may end mm-hmm. up, like in the case of Bloomingdale's or Bloomies, that store outside of D.C. is like 10 minutes on the, on the expressway or on the highway up to the, the Bloomingdale's store. And so, you know, that's, that's a really interesting trade-off. So they just open, we'll see how that works, but, but that's a little bit different, different challenge, I think, to make those, those concepts work because it could come across really as just a watered down version or not competitive with a set of retailers that are uh, in the immediate trade area that they have to steal business from. Well, I like how you always bring this back to those two elements, um, many elements, but the, the whole uh, what's in it for the customer, first of all. And then second, where's the sales coming from? Like, who are you taking share from? Now, we're in a weird time when there's retail growth everywhere. It seems, you know, according to Rod from our last episode, there's lots of growth to be had and less products to be had, but that won't last forever. So it's who are you grabbing that market share from? I think you want to be able to not only have an offering that's of interest to the customer, competitively differentiated, all the stuff we just talked about, but realize that, uh, the role of your store, and in many cases, has a much more important service function going forward. And also, you know, this this marketing role, we've talked about that a few times. I think yep, if you're Nordstrom's, yep. your Macy's, whatever, having, you know, it's a billboard, right? Um, yeah. If you're just driving by. So that, again, that's, I think, a particularly vexing issue for the department stores that are retrenching. Um, hmm. You know, like here in Dallas, uh, and I think, you know, separate episode probably on JC Penny, but Dallas is, is where Penny's <laughs> headquarters is. Yeah. And they've yeah. closed, I don't know, six or seven stores in the last couple of years. And so, uh, and there, and there are quite a few more, um, you know, competing stores, whether you think about it as, as Macy's or, or Target or Kohl's or, or what have you. And so, um, they've made their brand less convenient for customers to go into and, and shop, but they also have reduced their marketing impression. Uh, and so as customers are driving around or going to a mall or going to a particular shopping yeah. center, uh, they're seeing TJ Maxx a lot and they're seeing Ulta a lot and, you know, all these other, just not being thought of, right? Yeah. You just, yeah. Yeah. yeah you may, maybe, maybe you don't dislike JC Penny or whatever. You don't think ill of them. You just don't think of them at all. And that's part of that problem, right? They, I guess if you close stores and that strategy, you better gear up your other marketing, maybe put flyers on people's stores. Cause you know, people, People forget about your brand real quick. It also, I think, causes retailers, and I think this is the longer-term issue and why I fundamentally Mm. think we'll see more of these is, and we touched on this in the hybridization episode a month or so ago, uh, but, like, for example, if you look at what Nike's doing, Nike is developing a bunch of different formats for a given market. So they can have potentially these and probably only in major, major cities, the house of innovation, which is like the best of the best mm-hmm. real draw yeah. store, you know, cool experience technology. Story, as we yeah, used to and, and large and lot, very large. Yeah. Then they have more yeah. of the yeah. Nike format we've seen for a while, which is, which, you know, is a good feature, but not quite so elaborate in malls. Yeah. Uh, but now they've got Nike live, which is a s- smaller store, more local, uh, more kind of a membership model. They've got Nike Rise, which is kind of in between the House of Innovation. And so, and you know, for all I know, they they may have pickup only 
stores, right? If you want to get <laughs> order something on Nike on yeah. uh, Nike.com and want to get it close to your office, maybe they got pickup lockers or something like that. So I think you have to step back and say, well, what are all the things we're trying to do to grow share of wallet <laughs> with our customers, extend our reach, deal with convenience, which in some cases is, yeah, dot com. That's the way to make it convenient. You know, and, and deal with, with unit economics as as I as right, we both right. Uh, observe from our last episode with Rod Sides, he, 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 such a funny way he put it, but it was very clever. You know, the, the consumer's part of the supply chain. They're the last mile. They come and pick it up, and that changes unit economics fundamentally. Yeah, and what, what's what's interesting to me, and I, unfortunately, I think it tends to favor the, the newer, you know, the kind of disruptor brands is, you know, so whether we're talking about digitally native vertical brands or, you know, maybe these delivery mm-hmm. models or what have you. Endochinos of the world or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're, they're leveraging in many cases, a low cost of capital and they're getting to, when they expand, they get to open the latest and greatest thinking. And with all this knowledge about where retail is moving. So to your earlier point, if we are going to lose some business in the urban cores and go more, say, to de- suburbia or different types of centers, the guys that are able to open a lot of new stores, well, they get to put that format there. And then you've got the Macy's right. of the world that are like, oh, crap, you know, we got 600 or whatever they have now, these huge stores. And, <laughs> yeah, if we had to do it all over again, we'd probably put, you know, this this new thing across the street, but because um, that where that's kind of where it wants to be. And, but, you know, ah, we already got this big investment. So I think it's harder not impossible for some of the legacy players to move. Um, but someone like Nike or Nordstrom, I think uh, among the, the established players, they're a little bit better positioned because they're not so trapped in all this old massive real estate that, um, you know, it's kind mm. of fully depreciated. So, so anyway, so we'll, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So we'll see. So I think that's, I think that's a challenge, kind of the uh, innovators dilemma if people are familiar with. Clayton Christensen's yep. book that some of these insurgents have the advantage, of, you know, a bunch of advantages. Some of them are cultural as, as well, new technology, blah, 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 yep. you know, all the things that yep. make innovation hard. So, uh, so we'll see. I mean, I think, uh, but like I said, I think there's going to be this, this desire to really develop a more hybrid strategy uh, on, on the part of different physical formats, but certainly hmm. linking them or, or very much recognizing the degree you know, what e-commerce does to the economics, um, yep. you know, the different ways of doing fulfillment, whether you go to store, have it home delivered, et cetera. So it's a really, really interesting time. And certainly mm-hmm. we've got to get post COVID to understand exactly how this is mm-hmm. going to sort out. And as we talked about at the outset, some of these or many of these new small formats are have just opened um or you know there's like two of them so it's pretty hard to, yeah. to extrapolate to where we're going to see hundreds of these or or maybe none or a few dozen yeah i was gonna i was gonna say let's go to vegas and make a bet on uh if we're gonna if how much and how deep the strategy goes but i i'm actually very optimistic about the future of retail innovation from a store perspective because i think in the past 18 months generally retailers have been just trying to get through uh, whatever comes at them next but then thinking in the background about okay now what and i think we're going to see this flourish of innovation whether it's small stores whatever it is but specifically around small stores you've had acceleration of e-commerce moderation people are picking things up uh, unit economics you know there's so much going on i'm pretty excited actually 
about uh, about the future and about you know once we get past all this which as i've always seen you can see the end zone the goalposts keep moving a little bit but uh, hmm. i think the i think the real estate the real estate and store innovation is yet to come and we're going to have a very exciting couple of years so it's a great topic for our discussion today uh, so uh, as the radio folks or tv folks will say why don't we leave it there um, and we'll pick it up on another episode we got a lot of great guests coming up uh, but for now let's um, let's wrap up and, and uh, see everyone next week if you like what you heard please follow us on apple spotify amazon music or your favorite podcast platforms so you can catch up with all our great interviews subscribe so that just automatically shows up uh, tell your friends and and also uh, in new insights and new episodes will show up every week so tell your friends uh, because that will help us uh, share the word the good the, 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 the good wisdom now be sure and check out <laughs> and be sure and check us out on uh, our new youtube channel not so new anymore we've got a couple episodes up there uh, and just look for remarkable retail and i'm steve dennis you can check out more of my work at my website stevenpdennis.com or on forbes or on twitter And please check out my second edition of my book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption, available just about everywhere books are sold. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and host of the Voice Retail Podcast and a bunch of other stuff. You can find me on LinkedIn, learn about me on meleblanc.co. All right, Steve, great episode. Look forward to chatting again next week. Be safe and uh, have a great rest of your day.